You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Squamous cell cervical cancer has the distinction among cancers of having an excellent screening test, as well as being the first cancer to have an effective and recently approved vaccine. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Joel Heller, and with me today is Dr. Diljeet Singh, a gynecologic oncologist at the Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center of Northwestern University and assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. We were talking today about the latest information on uh, cervical cancer risk prevention. Let's start with screening. Uh, we know it's uh, been very successful. How and when did uh, cervical cancer screening start and how effective actually is it? So before we actually get to that, I'm going to mention one other thing. Um, you know, you, you said squamous cell cervical cancer as a distinction of having an excellent screening test, a recently approved vaccine. I actually think adenocarcinomas of the cervix, which are about 20% of cervical cancers, probably are also um, screen- mostly screenable for, and uh, a majority of them will be covered by the recently approved vaccine. So screening started in the 50s, and actually it was the efforts of uh, Dr. Papanicolaou, who was trying to develop an endometrial cancer screening test, but um, was uh, lucky enough to develop a cervical cancer screening test. It's incredibly effective. Uh, since we've been screening specifically with cytology or assessing the cells from the surface of the cervix and from the endocervix, we've managed to decrease the rates of cervical cancer between 70 and 90% in the countries in which we've been able to put into place cervical cancer screening programs. And it's not just screening, it's screening identifying precancers and then effectively treating precancers. And the lucky thing is, is that cervical cancer um, has a prolonged precancerous phase, probably up to 10 years long. And so we have this long period of time that we can treat it. And then there's a bunch of easy, straightforward outpatient treatments um, that are affected, almost, you know, greater than 90% of the time. So we kind of have the perfect disease, so to speak, where there's, you can pick it up before it even becomes cervical cancer when it's precancer treat that precancer and prevent cancer. Currently, who, when, and how often should women in the United States be screened? You know, we have too many options here in America <laughs> <laughs> and around the world. So right now the standard is, you know, um, within three years of becoming sexually active or age 18. Um, but how often? It's going to start depending a little bit on the test, in the, on the test we use. Currently we're recommending yearly um, cytology until after 35, and after 35, it was is not unreasonable if someone has a normal pap smear and a normal a negative HPV test to be tested every three years. For someone who's with the same partner who's had three normal paps in a row, um, it's not unreasonable to go to every two to three year screening. And unfortunately, it's something that's incredibly inconsistent. Um, currently, if you go to the U.S. Preventive Task Force, a little different than the ACS, a little different than ACOG, um, because we have a little a lot of options. The bottom line, I would say, is regular evaluation. Again, discussion with someone's health care provider in terms of, you know, what are your individual risk factors, and then so what's the best screening plan or program for you? Well, let's talk about those risk factors. Uh, when taking a history of a patient and, and talking to a patient, what are the major risk factors that need to be considered? Uh, in terms of hormone, family history, sexual history, race, lifestyle, those type of things? Fortunately, we've figured out what causes the vast majority of cervical cancer, and it's certain types of human papillomavirus, HPV, and they're considered high-risk or oncogenic HPV types. Now, who's at risk? Well, anybody who's ever had sex. So that gets a little tricky. 
um, in terms of trying to distinguish who's at higher or lower risk. But we know that people who have a higher chance of being exposed to more HPV, so more sexual partners, one, two, people who started having intercourse earlier in life. And we think that's a little bit about exposure to HPV. It's also about exposure of the cervix to HPV at a time that it was more vulnerable or still growing and developing in a certain way. When individual physicians see patients, obviously somebody with a history of an abnormal pap smear or history of a treatment for abnormal pap smear um, is going to be um, important. Smoking. Smoking is bad. <laughs> Smoking increases your risk of I've most, heard that. <laughs> most things, including cervical dysplasia, persistence of human papillomavirus and causing um, precancerous lesions or high-grade lesions of the cervix, and then risk for cervical cancer. There's some evidence that perhaps oral contraceptives may contribute to some vulnerability of the inside of the cervix to precancerous changes. To me, that doesn't mean someone should consider not going on the pill because I think there's a million great reasons to be on the pill, um, including the prevention of other gynecologic cancers, ovary and endometrial. But it does mean that that may be someone who shouldn't be switched to an every three-year plan, for example. Family history is an interesting question. I think that human papillomavirus exposure to it is such a huge risk factor and such a predominant force that we weren't sure for many years, but now in some countries it's starting to seem like there probably is some family history component to a susceptibility. You know, I just said everybody who had sex basically gets exposed to HPV. That's 80 to 90 percent of people. But clearly a much smaller percentage of that um, number of women actually has persistence of the virus that leads to an abnormal pap smear. Even smaller than that percentage of women who have abnormal pap smears actually have precancerous changes. So there's still something different that we haven't figured out, like who in all of the millions of women who get exposed to HPV actually get precancers. We haven't quite figured that out. The only real risk factors are kind of the ones I mentioned, early age of intercourse, one, and then smoking. The vast majority of pap smears in the United States are done by primary care physicians. At what point in the process should the primary doctor refer? Wow, that's, that's a tough one. Again, I think it's going to at some level depend on the individual physician's comfort level with abnormal pap smears. One of the best colposcopists or evaluator of abnormal pap smears that I know is a pathologist. He does clinical colposcopy. So I think it's um, how much you handle. Um, and there's some great resources for that, and a lot of it is about expertise. I do think there's some things that are less common that probably do require referral to somebody who spends a lot of their time doing colposcopy that's not necessarily a gynecologic oncologist. Most likely it is someone who is a gynecologist at least, though, and that's um, adenocarcinoma in situ. And then the evaluation of abnormal pap during pregnancy can be difficult. Both of those things probably need to fall in the hands of someone who does a lot of colposcopy. So very exciting. Uh, a vaccine has come out to prevent cancer. Let's talk about the HPV vaccine. Can you tell us about what its mode of action is and who should get it and when in their life they should get it? Unfortunately, we're really early in the process of figuring out the answers to all of those questions. The way the vaccine works is essentially it immunizes against, the one that's out currently immunizes against the two most common causes of precancers and cancers in the U.S., and Canada, and um, Western Europe, and that's HPV type 16 and 18. Also vaccinates against HPV type 6 and 11, 
which do not cause cancer or precancer, but do cause genital warts, and they're the most common cause of genital warts. The process of evaluating a vaccine is difficult, and it's difficult because, um, number one, you need to evaluate people for a vaccine who've never been exposed to what you're trying to vaccinate them against, one. Two, our ability to study vaccines um, in the pediatric population is limited because obviously you need to prove safety. So the way we kind of came to our recommendations of who should be vaccinated, the FDA approved the vaccine in the age group from 9 to 26-year-old women. And in the United States, it's just approved for women, although in the U.K., It's been approved both for men and women. Um, And here, the recommendation has been that we target um, uh, girls at the 11 to 13-year range, sort of trying to catch them as old as possible because we haven't followed the vaccine long enough to know if it's a lifetime. So far, we know it's at least five years, probably from European data, 10 years of effectiveness, probably more than that. We just haven't followed it long enough. So that's where of the 11 to 13 comes from before the onset of sexual activity where you get exposed to uh, HPV, but still trying to go as old as possible so we actually can see the longest um, effectiveness uh, possible. Sort of the questions more in a way are who doesn't need the vaccine? (laughs) Although obviously oncologists, I'm a big believer in the vaccine, and so that's why I think of it as a who doesn't. And probably those are questions that we haven't figured out yet. Um, I think that there's plenty of women who have had abnormal PAPs, and so there's evidence that um, they've been exposed to HPV. You know, should they be vaccinated? And there's studies currently being done to answer that question, and that's going to end up being sort of an individual patient-doctor discussion. But there may be still some benefit because someone's had an abnormal PAP, and was that because of HPV type 6, 11, 16, or 18? No, it might have been one of the numerous other HPV types. So, and effectiveness, you asked me about effectiveness. The studies are excellent. They're greater than 90% for people who um, were included in the trials. They were 100% for people who got perfectly vaccinated. That is, they had a negative HPV test before they started it. They got all three shots like they were supposed to, and they didn't get exposed to HPV while they were getting those three shots. But even if you included people who were previously exposed or exposed during the process, or who got only two of the three or one of the three shots, the effectiveness was somewhere between 80 and 95%. Where are we today in the year 2000 in terms of treatment of cervical cancer? You know, because we have been so successful in um, preventing cervical cancer, and, you know, in the United States we really only see about 11,000 cases a year, and fortunately um, only about 3.3,600 women actually die of cervical cancer most of the women who get cervical cancer, most of the women who die of cervical cancer are not screened. So what do we do for treatment? Currently, we can do fertility-preserving options like cold-life cones for very early. There's a lot of research currently being done in a procedure called a trachelectomy, which removes only the cervix but preserves the top of the uterus um, so there's still the ability to have kids. Doing that laparoscopically, removing lymph nodes laparoscopically, there's a lot of very exciting sort of surgical approaches um, to early cervical cancers. For later cervical cancers, almost 10 years ago now, we sort of found that we could improve our cure rates. When we were doing radiation alone initially and we added chemotherapy, we improved cure rates. So now for more advanced cervical cancers, we are 
pretty effective with a combination of radiation and chemotherapy. Radiation for cervical cancer has gotten less and less common. I just quoted pretty small numbers when you look at that. And so when I think about you know, the kinds of cancers where you benefit from expert radiation or somebody who takes care of uh, a certain amount of cervical cancer and it has a certain experience doing that treatment, cervical cancer is definitely one of them. The internal treatments, internal radiation treatments we do for cervical cancer um, need to be done well to be effective, and then they need to be done well to prevent complications. I want to thank Dr. Diljeet Singh for being our guest today as we discuss the current state of prevention and treatment of cervical cancer. I'm Dr. Joel Heller. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.